please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Old Testament prophet Obadiah. You can find Obadiah right between Amos and Jonah. Uh, and uh, we are studying, for those of you who are visitors with us, we have been spending some time recently studying some of the minor prophets. We began a larger study back in the spring by looking first at the minor prophet Joel. And two weeks ago, we just finished up our study of the minor prophet Malachi. Now we are stepping backward in the canon and also backward in time a little bit. Malachi is the last of the writing prophets. Obadiah is a prophet who writes right around the time of the exile of the Jews to Babylon in 586. Uh, and uh, you will notice, for those of you who have been with us, that there is not only a shift in time and, uh, and location in our Bibles, but there is a shift in theme and a focus here as we go from Malachi to Obadiah. When we were looking in Malachi, you may remember that God was dealing primarily with sins of the heart and sins of the behavior of his people. In other words, God was dealing with the enemies within the church in Malachi, and in Obadiah, God is dealing with the enemies outside of the church. You'll see that very clearly in the first verse. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, dealing with a nation outside of Israel. And truth be told, if we're going to have a balanced biblical view of our lives, we need to have both of those messages. So the scripture often talks about us, uh, talks about the sins of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. But Jesus also warned his children that as he was sending them out, he needed to send them as sheep amidst wolves. He told them that, uh, that if the world hates his followers, we need to know that it hated him first, and we ought to expect to be hated for his namesake. And so to have a balanced biblical view, we need to understand what the Lord is doing, both with the enemies of our own sin, the enemies that we bring into the church, and what it means for the church to live in the midst of a hostile world. And that means that Obadiah is a very contemporary message, even though it speaks about a nation that you have never seen and will never visit because it no longer exists. So Obadiah today, uh, it is just 21 verses, the shortest book in the Old Testament, and Lord willing, we are going to cover the whole thing uh, in one sermon. So before we read Obadiah together, please join me again in a word of prayer. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on our study together. Oh, gracious Lord and God, we pray that as we read this word, you would make it new and fresh to us. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, most of all, hearts to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you have sent into the world. Oh, Lord, help us to find comfort in you. The message that you have for your children in Obadiah, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in the book of Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, 
If plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise man out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so shall all nations drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they never had been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Thus far the ruling, reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. During the time of the Revolutionary War, one of the British officials dubbed him, quote, the most enterprising and dangerous of the commanders among the colonists. He was by all accounts a war hero, a military genius. In 1775, he led the force alongside the Green Mountain Boys of Vermont uh, that eventually captured Fort Ticonderoga in upstate New York. After Ticonderoga, he toppled Crown Point and Fort George as well. Later that same year, he led 1,100 men through 350 miles of uncharted Maine wilderness in an attempt to take Quebec City. In 1776, he was given command of the new naval fleet stationed on Lake Champlain, and by 1777, he led the American victories at the battles of Saratoga. 
1778, after recovering from the wounds he had incurred at Saratoga, he participated in the first American Oath of Allegiance. He signed his name and his rank, along with other military men and officers, and he vowed to support and defend the United States with all fidelity, according to the best of his skill and understanding. And yet, in the following year, 1779, this same man, Benedict Arnold, wrote to his secret contacts among the British forces and offered to orchestrate the surrender of West Point, New York, for the humble sum of 20,000 British pounds. Well, there is nothing quite so treacherous as a traitor. And there are few wounds that sting like the sting of betrayal. Which is why possibly the most emotionally charged words in this whole prophecy show up in verse 10 and again in verse 12. Your brother. You remember the history, of course. Rebecca was pregnant with twin sons who felt like they were already at war with one another within her womb. And so she went to inquire of the Lord. And in Genesis 25, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now fast forward 1,400 years. The situation now is sometime after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. The Babylonians have sacked the holy city. And Edom, always the jealous older brother, watched and rejoiced and even joined in the massacre of God's chosen people. But now, as Obadiah is writing, the remnant is in exile. The few that survived have been deposited in a foreign land, and they're wondering, is God paying attention? Has he seen the suffering that we've endured? Does he know our pain of betrayal? And the message of Obadiah is God's comfort to his persecuted people. Obadiah is God's way of speaking to a people in terrible circumstances and letting them know, I see what you've suffered. I know how you've been betrayed. I will not let the guilty go unpunished. Now, this text is longer than we typically uh, handle on a Sunday morning, but you notice that there really are just two main points to Obadiah's sermon. This is a message of judgment, and this is a message of deliverance. The vast majority of the text deals with that first point, so it will be much longer than the second, by the way. Uh, don't, don't despair when we finally get to point number two. The vast majority of the text deals with God's judgment against his enemies. Specifically, this book deals with God's judgment against Edom. Israel's neighbor to the south. But then we'll see in verse 15 that Edom's retribution, her sin and her judgment, really are representative. What God declares against Edom, he's going to bring on all the nations of the earth who set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. Edom's sin is representative. It represents the sin of the whole world that lies in the power of the devil. And so because Obadiah tells us that this is bigger than Edom, that's how we're going to have to understand it by the time we get to the end. But for now, nevertheless, the primary focus is on Edom. 
on a real historical nation that existed alongside Israel in the ancient Near East. And Obadiah says in verse 1 that he has heard a rallying cry. This is the message of the Lord. It's going out among the other nations, rallying the troops, telling them to gather their swords and come in battle against the nation of Edom. So already this ought to challenge our understanding of just how far God is able to reach into time and to history. When we think of the God of the Bible, we ought not to think of some, uh, some celestial spectator who sits twiddling his thumbs, watching as nations rise and fall. The God of the Bible is the God of the nations. He's the one who raises kingdoms and brings them down. And when he announces his judgment against Edom, God is declaring that he is the one who has to be reckoned with. That is precisely what Edom did not do. Edom lived in earthly security. They had fortifications and and wisdom, and warriors, and they began to trust them, and they began to become proud of of what they had become because they believed that they were untouchable. They laid hands on God's people because they thought no one could hold them accountable. We still see this arrogance sometimes, don't we? Several weeks ago, when we prayed for the persecuted church in Sudan, we read this in our bulletin insert. It said, on April 10th, Islamist extremists attacked a church, injuring Pastor Estefanos and three women and damaging church property. Incredibly, the pastor was charged with disturbing public order by a policeman who joined in the attack, and the pastor was sentenced to one month in prison. When you think you can get away with whatever you want, you do whatever you want. And when you think you can lay hands on God's chosen people and no one will hold you to account, well, then that's exactly what you do, and that's exactly what the Edomites did. That was the pride that motivated Edom's violence. They believed they were untouchable. So God says they lived in lofty dwellings. You notice that in verse 3. He says they're in the clefts of the rock. If you have ever seen pictures of the lost city of Petra, you know exactly the geography that God is talking about. Edom built their capital cities on mountain slopes surrounded by sheer rock faces, cliffs. Their homes were accessible only by narrow passes that that only one or maybe two people in certain places could, uh, could walk side by side. They thought no one could conquer them. They said, who will bring me down to the ground? But the Lord is going to do just that. There is no height that he cannot reach. There is no wall that he cannot break through. When the Lord announces judgment against Edom, he promises to completely deflate those who are puffed up with pride. And then we see in verses 5 to 9, the Lord itemizes this destruction that he's going to bring against Edom. Notice there, God says first that they are going to be completely plundered. Completely plundered. You've probably seen video footage on the news somewhere of these Uh, these drugstore robberies that are happening in places like L.A. and San Francisco. You've seen them. The thieves walk in in broad daylight, and they come in with a garbage bag, and they fill it with everything they can carry, and they simply walk out the front door before the clerk can call the cops. But, you know, they they can't take everything in the store. It's quick. It's in and out. It's it's only what they can carry. That's the point of verse 5. Looters take only what they can. Grape gatherers, he says, only collect enough for the harvest. 
when the Lord sends judgment, it will be a different story. When the Lord sends his judgment against Edom, there will be no morsel left. Seir and Taman will be like piggy banks smashed and emptied, and every last penny taken. Edom will be, God says, completely plundered. The Lord also says that Edom will be utterly betrayed. Now, in their pride, Edom had made alliances with the other powerful nations around them. That's why we find in verse 14 that as the Israelites are fleeing, the Edomites act like vassals of a larger suzerain, Babylon. And they're gathering the stragglers and the survivors, and they're handing them over to the Babylonian overlords. They were in league with Babylon. They'd made alliances for themselves with the stronger nations, the power players of the day. They hoped that if they ever faced difficulties of their own, these powerful nations would come and help them out. That won't be how it happens. And so verse 7 reminds us of those words that we read in John chapter 13 today. Jesus ate with Judas and he told us that he who eats my bread lifts his heel against me. So verse 7 tells us that those who eat your bread, Edom, will have set a trap beneath you. It is an unthinkable treachery. This intimate fellowship, this table fellowship with one another, and then to turn around and to stab someone in the back. But Edom was willing to do that to their brothers, the Israelites. And Edom themselves will be betrayed by the allies that they've gathered. So they will be completely plundered. They'll be utterly betrayed. They will also have their wisdom and their strategy completely cut off. In the ancient world, Edom was known for several things, and wisdom was one of the things that Edom was known for. Uh, its, uh, its cities, capital cities, were nestled directly on the major east-west trade route that connected uh, Egypt with India. And that meant that as people, as merchants, traveled back and forth as they stopped in Edom to sell their wares, their spices, and their textiles, they also brought with them lots of new philosophies and ideas. Do you remember what Paul said about Athens in the New Testament? Or, or what Luke says about Athens when Paul visited? That it's a place where they love to do nothing but sit around and discuss new things. What's the latest idea? What's the next philosophy that's coming to be? Well, Edom was sort of an ancient Athens before Athens was an Athens. They were known for their wisdom. In fact, in the book of Job, one of Job's three counselors was a man named Eliphaz. And where was Eliphaz from? He was from Taman in Edom. Eliphaz the Tamanite. That was supposed to mean that he was full of the world's best ideas. But the Lord says the day is coming when he's going to destroy the wise men out of Edom. He's going to confound their counsel. And all the military that take their orders from Edom will be left without leadership. And so verse 9, he says, Your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. It's a picture of absolute destruction. Piece by piece, their treasures and their allies and their wisdom will be shattered, and God has announced his judgment on Edom. He itemizes the destruction he's bringing against them, and then in verses 10 to 16, the Lord gives us his justification for his judgment. Verse 15, he says, As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return upon your own head. It is the doctrine of retributive justice. 
lex talionis, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Strangely enough, it is the same doctrine that Eliphaz the Tamanite tried to give to Job in the midst of his suffering. He's the first one to speak up in the book of Job. After Job has had his entire life completely obliterated, Job chapter 4, verses 7 to 9, Eliphaz tells him, Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, he says, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. Too true, Eliphaz, too true. And now it's coming against Edom, and the Lord is letting them know that when all of these things come against them, it's payback. It is retributive justice. As they have done, it will be done to them. The judgment comes, verse 10 says, because of the violence they did to their brother Jacob. Now, verses 10 to 14 show us that violence. And there are a lot of moving parts there. There was a day of disaster. There was a day of distress and ruin for the people. And on that faithful day, Edom treated their brothers like strangers. And all these moving parts, we could summarize pretty easily what Edom's violence against Israel entailed. We can summarize it by paying attention to the things that Edom took on the day of calamity. The day of Israel's calamity, when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians, the Edomites took pleasure, they took possession, and they took part in the slaughter. The Edomites took pleasure. Notice the language here of boasting, of, of gloating, of rejoicing. Edom had always been opposed to God's plan for Israel. You remember all the way back when they came out of Egypt and they stopped and they said, let us pass through your territory. We'll stick to the highway. We'll pay you for the water that we drink. We won't take a fig or a grape or anything that's yours. Just let us get to what God has given to us. And Numbers tells us that Edom came out with a great number and with strong swords and they pushed them back and said, you shall not pass here. They've always been opposed to God's plan for Israel, and now when Israel fell to the Babylonians, the Edomites stood cheering and celebrating. The smoke is rising, and the bodies are falling, and they can't get enough. They love it. Psalm 137, the Jerusalem exiles are singing a sad song of destruction. Remember 137, they begin by saying, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. And then the taunting and the jeering of their, their Babylonian captors. Sing us the songs of Zion, they said. But they couldn't. Before that psalm is over, they turn to the other things that they remember. Verse 7, they say, Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day that Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. So what was the violence of Edom? Well, it began when they took pleasure in Israel's fall. They also took possessions that belonged to God's people. Verse 13, the Lord warns them, do not enter the gate of my people. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Where the Edomites should have been helping their brothers, instead they're taking advantage. Instead, they became like the gleaners who came behind the grape harvesters. They're picking off every last treasure and trinket, every garment they can find that the Babylonians had left behind. So Edom took pleasure, 
Edom took possessions, but worst of all, the Edomites took part in the slaughter. So verse 14, as the few survivors managed to escape the city, Edom was there. And some of the refugees they handed over, and some of them they slaughtered. And the difference between the two was most likely what was in it for them. They found the old, they found the sick, they found the frail. Uh, no use giving them to the Babylonians. We'll just get rid of them. But, but if we can make a buck off of taking them and, and, and passing them along to the next person, well, that's what we'll do. They have been merciless towards God's people. And so the Lord says, as you have done, it will be done to you. And God is giving us the justification for his judgment. And this is God's judgment on Edom. There's a day coming, he says, that he's going to shatter them completely. He says he's going to cut them off from the face of the, the earth because they were opposed to his people. And if you've been with us, you know that we've been in the Myron Prophets long enough that you can recognize this day of the Lord language. You can recognize this this frightening image of fire and stubble, it sounds an awful lot like the end of Malachi, doesn't it? Where all the enemy nations of the earth and all of those who set themselves against the Lord will be stubble in God's furnace. They will be completely burnt up. And the Lord says here in Obadiah, there shall be no survivor left for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. The Lord has spoken. He has declared his judgment on his enemies. But the strange thing about Obadiah is that even though verse 1, excuse me, verse 1 tells us that this message is concerning Edom, it doesn't seem that this message was spoken to Edom. No, this message was spoken to Israel. There were other prophets who went outside of Israel. Right? Jonah went and, and he called Nineveh to repentance. Moses showed up and he called Pharaoh to let God's people go. But there's no indication that this word made its way to Edom or that it was ever intended to. This is God speaking to his people. He wants his children to eavesdrop on the sentence that he's passing against those who had done them harm. This message was meant for the comfort of God's children. And the comfort of Obadiah is that the God of the Bible is the God of justice. He is the God who takes sin seriously. He takes note of the suffering of his people. He's the God who repays those who lay violent hands on his children. And if you think that Obadiah's comfort isn't very comforting, maybe you need to consider some of the things that God's people face in the world. We could multiply many more examples every week when we pray for the persecuted church. We could multiply examples of the sufferings of our brothers and sisters in what is called the 1040 window. Right? That includes northern Africa. It includes Asia and the Middle East, approximately between uh, 10 degrees and 40 degrees north latitude. We could multiply examples from places where hatred for the church is the norm where violence against Christians is an everyday occurrence. But then again, God's people here share the sufferings of Christ as well. It's not the same. I'm not trying to say that it is. It's not the same here, perhaps, yet. So far, it doesn't amount to burning and looting and to a confiscation of our property. But some of you know the antagonism. 
and it feels palpable against a Christian, against the worldview of Christ, every time you step into your workplace, every time you go to your school, every time you meet with your extended family, you know that hostility that seems like it used to live mostly on the internet, but now it's showing up in real life. Some of you know what it is to wonder if you might lose your job because of what Christ has taught you to believe about certain hot topic issues. And for all of God's mishandled children, both here and abroad, the takeaway is that our God sees. He knows. He takes notice. He takes note of every sideways glance and every slap and kick and false accusation aimed at his covenant people. Our Lord knows. And our Lord will bring justice to those who oppose his salvation. Do you notice the way God talks about Israel? The way he talks about Zion? He calls them my people. He calls it my mountain. That means that this is not about your enemies. It's not about my enemies. It's not about the people that make us feel uneasy because we're Christians and we might not want to speak up for, for fear that they might think ill of us. It's not about those things. This is about the world set in opposition to God and his plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. My people, he says. My mountain, he says. Our God is possessive. Our God is protective. This passage is about the Lord who vindicates his people and who casts off all those who set their face against him. So to all the believers who are suffering and waiting for God's justice, God's message through Obadiah is that justice is coming. In a very real historical sense, it did come upon Edom. By the 4th century B.C., the nation of Edom was overtaken by an Arab Bedouin tribe known as the Nabataeans. They ceased to be known as a nation as such, but they continued through the Roman Empire and were known as the Idumeans as a people group, Herod. And all the Herods of the New Testament were Idumeans. They were Edomites, in other words. But by the second fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., both the nation and the people group absolutely disappear altogether from the historical record. That means that the second comfort that God's people take from this prophecy is that the God of justice is also the God who can be trusted. He promised Edom that because of the violence done to their brother Jacob, they would be cut off forever, and that is what happened. They do not exist anymore. God can be trusted. When he makes a promise, he will keep it. And that's even more important considering the second main point of this prophecy. Because after the Lord declares judgment on his enemies, he also promises deliverance for his people. Now, I told you the first one was much longer. The second point really comprises only the remaining five verses in this text. But once we've understood the violence and the treachery that the Lord exposes through Edom, the leading promise of verse 17 becomes real to us. He says, but in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape. Escape, says the Lord. To fly to safety. 
to get to the place where the enemy can no longer pursue, to get where sadness and suffering can no longer catch up. In Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. Not escape from Mount Zion. That's what they were trying to do when the Edomites found them. But escape to Mount Zion. Escape in Mount Zion, he says. If it's been a while since you've read Lamentations, let me suggest those short five chapters for some Sunday meditation today. In Lamentations, we get Jeremiah the prophet's first-hand account of the siege of Jerusalem at the hands of Babylon. It was an ordeal that lasted 18 months. It was a slow-motion starvation. Everywhere in the city was death. There was famine inside the walls. There was a sword outside of the walls. Lamentations chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Jeremiah writes this. He says, my eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city. As their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. That actually happened. That's a historical account. And can you imagine, I think most of us probably cannot imagine, but could you imagine when the walls were finally broken? When the armies finally streamed in, could you imagine being one of the ones who somehow snuck out, who slipped behind the enemy forces and into the darkness and onto the roads and that growing faint hope that maybe you survived? Maybe you've escaped this ordeal, this horror that you and your family mostly lived through. Can you imagine what would happen just to be stopped and recaptured and handed over as a slave? Don't forget that God is writing these words to his exiles. God is writing these words to the people who lived through what Jeremiah lived through. He's sending his prophecy to those who were there, and after all the suffering of those months and years, he says to his weary people that there is safety in Mount Zion. Can you imagine, I think, how powerful that one little word must have been to their ears? Can you imagine what it's supposed to represent to us today as well? In Babylon, there will be those who escape. Not just those who escape. I'm sorry, in Zion, there will be those who escape. Not just those who escape from Babylon. Not just those who escape from Edom. In Zion, there will be those who escape from the day of the Lord. That's the, uh, that's the logic of the passage if you follow it through from verse 15 to 17. This is the promise. This is bigger than wars. This is bigger than one nation struggling against another. The Lord says the day is coming when all the nations will drink the cup of God's wrath to the dregs. When all the nations of the earth will be as though they never had been, says Yahweh of hosts. But for those who run to the Lord rather than from him, there will be safety. In Zion there is escape. The Lord says in Zion too, there will be holiness. The Lord says in Zion, the house of Jacob will possess their own possessions. 
That's a beautiful little phrase, too. It means that they will receive all those things that God had laid up for them from the very beginning. All the blessings they intended, that he intended for them to have. So in verses 19 and 20, you notice that the text speaks in, in true Old Testament fashion about the expansion of the tribes. They're filling the promised land and then some. And, and you don't have to be able to, to find all of the places on a map. You don't have to know where the Shephelah or Gilead is. Gilead's way beyond the Jordan, by the way. The Shephelah is the lowlands. You don't have to know where all of those places are to get the picture. That God's people are going to be restored. That God's promises are going to be fulfilled. And his people will receive the gracious blessings that he set apart for them. The things he had in store for them to possess. The blessings for his children. Now it's very likely that there is a historical component to these promises as well. So you notice in verse 21 it speaks of saviors who go up to Mount Zion. The word saviors doesn't mean that there's more than one Messiah. doesn't mean that there are more than one uh, Christ. It's the same word as translated in other places, deliverers, liberators. It's the, it's the word used in the Old Testament to describe Samson and, and Ehud and the rest of the judges of Israel's past. In God's grace, even after the exile, the Lord did send some mighty leaders to shepherd his people. After the exile, there was Ezra and Nehemiah, and there was Joshua, and there was Zerubbabel, and there were probably others whose names are lost to history, but the Lord sent heroes of faith who fit this description, and most likely that's what he has in mind with these saviors. But then you notice that in the final line of Obadiah, he again steps beyond the bounds of real time and history. Saviors, he says, shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That's the phrase. That's what we pray for according to Christ's example. That's what we prayed today. Thy kingdom come. It is what the final vision of the New Testament tells us we should expect at the close of history. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. All of that means that there are judgments in the prophecy of Obadiah that cannot be reduced to the downfall of the Edomites. And it means that there are promises in Obadiah that cannot be contained by the Israelites retaking Palestine. What it means is that when the Lord offers holiness and inheritance and safety in Mount Zion, he is pointing his people toward heavenly realities. There is a city, says Hebrews chapter 11, whose builder and founder is God. There is a better country, it tells us, that is, a heavenly one. There is a Mount Zion, which is the city of the living God. There is a heavenly Jerusalem with innumerable angels in festal gathering. There is an assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. There is God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And there is Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And there is his sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than Abel. That's what the New Testament speaks about when it speaks of safety and escape and holiness in Mount Zion. And what it means is that you cannot fully understand the comfort of Obadiah until you understand the comfort of the gospel. That might seem like a strange conclusion if you happen to be a secular Old Testament philosopher. 
and scholar. But if you're reading the Bible like a Christian, that is the only conclusion you want to be satisfied with. After his resurrection, Jesus Christ appeared to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It doesn't mean that in every single verse of the Old Testament there's some hidden messianic text. But it does mean that the prophets are meant to be read as a prelude to the gospel. The prophets are about preparation. This is something that I hope you grasp by the end of our time in the Minor Prophets, by the end of our study this summer. The prophets are about preparation. And so Joel and Malachi and Obadiah and Nahum all give us the language of sin and salvation. They give us categories of judgment and deliverance so that we would see our greatest need. The prophets teach us about the great and terrible day of the Lord and they teach us about a kingdom that is coming and they teach us those things so that when Jesus shows up on the pages of the New Testament, they teach us those things so that when in Mark chapter 1 we read that Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand repent and believe the gospel the prophets tell us all of those things so that when that happens we can say I know what he's talking about I'm ready to read the New Testament and to see it applied through Jesus Christ I know the comfort that Jesus is preaching I know the safety of salvation from the wrath of God because there's one who has come to drink that cup in my place instead we're way over time. <laughs> this is a long passage, and this is a long sermon, but I want you to understand this about Obadiah. I want you to know that the message of God's prophet is not complete until we find it fulfilled in the gospel. And I want you to know that the comfort of the gospel is not complete in your life until you personally are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who gives us safety. He is the one who makes us holy. He's the one who gives us an inheritance in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In the day of the Lord, there shall be those who escape to heavenly Zion. And praise the Lord for the one he sent to get us there and to himself. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Lord, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that as we read your prophets this summer, you would give us faith in you. Help us not only to see the, the history which is real and uh, the comfort which is close, but help us also to see our Savior who calls and leads and beckons his people to walk with him in faith. We pray, oh Lord, that you would cause us to do just that to trust in you and to know you. Give salvation to those hearing this word today. We pray that we all as one people would be joined together to him to trust and receive the gift of his comfort and life and safety in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.